Hello and welcome to Anomalous Waves, a podcast discussing all things strange. I'm John. I'm Ami. And over here we got Lilliput. <laughs> Today I will be discussing the unsolved mystery of animal mutilations that have swept across the country for decades. And I will be discussing some legends behind vampires and also modern vampires. And then, of course, we have some spooky news. We have the return of the jetpack guy and a blue UFO spotted over Hawaii, as well as a new segment following spooky news, spooky movie reviews. And be sure to check our show notes for all of our contact information and the references for today's episode. If you have any spooky stories you want to share with us or comments, suggestions, feedback, please send them to anomalouswaves at gmail.com or reach out on any of our social media. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Anomalous Waves. So lately I've been reading The 37th Parallel by Ben Mesrick. It is an account of Chuck Zukowski, a.k.a. the Molder of El Paso. Okay. So he's a microchip engineer, a sheriff deputy, and a UFO investigator. Love it. So the title of the book, The 37th Parallel, refers to the 37th degree of latitude across the U.S., and how it's had a very large number of UFO sightings and cattle slash animal mutilations. So the 37th degree of latitude forms the borders between Utah and Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, and Kansas and Oklahoma. In the book, it also states that there's been over 10,000 cases of unexplained animal mutilations in America. Wow. So there are some common traits of things that happen to these animals that kind of make it this unexplained style. So the first nationally recognized case happened in 1967 in San Luis Valley, Colorado. And it is a case known as the case of Snippy the Horse. Now, originally this horse's name was Lady, but a morbid journalist gave her the name Snippy. I don't like that. Yeah. So she was a three-year-old Appaloosa. And like I said, her body was discovered on a ranch in Colorado and some very unnatural circumstances. This is from the 37th parallel. As with the many mutilations that would come after, Snippy had been found lying on one side. Some of the hide cut away to expose the body cavity. The animal's heart and brain were missing, along with other organs, and the bones that were visible had been bleached a strange white color. A visiting pathologist had been called in and had reported that the injuries to the horse had appeared to be surgical in nature. He had also noted with surprise that there was no blood found in or around the carcass. That's so weird. So that is like a textbook animal mutilation scenario. Yeah. So the first kind of trait is exsanguination. That is the action of draining a person, animal, or organ of blood. So like the case of Snippy the horse, there are many animal mutilations where the body is found completely drained of blood. So in the NPR article titled 
not one drop of blood, cattle mysteriously mutilated in Oregon, it talks about a few other cases that have more recently happened. So this article was released in early October of 2019, but the event happened that previous summer. So it involves five young purebred bulls who were found dead at Sylvie's Valley Ranch in eastern Oregon. They were completely drained of blood and had body parts previously removed. Here is a quote from that article. Coming upon one of the dead bulls is an eerie scene. The forest is hot and still apart from a raven's repeating caw. The bull looks like a giant deflated plush toy. It smells. Weirdly, there are no signs of buzzards, coyotes, or other scavengers. His red coat is as shiny as if he were going to the fair, but he's bloodless and his tongue and genitals have been surgically cut out. So another common trait in that one and with Snippy is missing organs or hide removal. So many cases involve various missing organs in these animal mutilations and usually describe the cuts as surgical or even laser-like. One of the first cases talked about in the 37th parallel involve a 50-acre cattle and horse ranch in Colorado. It's owned by a woman named Glenda, and the case involves her two horses named Princess and Buck, who both died in very unnatural ways. So she's, Glenda says the cuts were so laser-like that her husband told the police who originally investigated the incident that he thought it may be some sort of military agency using some sort of high-tech lasers. So Chuck noted that he did not see any burn marks, but as he was running his finger along the animal's ribs, he felt etch-like markings starting approximately three inches from the spine on each rib, originating up near the skull and running consistently down all the ribs, a straight-line pattern leading all the way to the 11th rib. That's so weird. So yeah, that sounds like maybe some sort of laser or something. It made etchings in the bones, like perfect little straight lines. So another weird thing that happened in this case specifically, so this isn't really a common trait, but there were witnesses, aka animals that were close by when it happened, left alive. A two-year-old male horse who was always with Princess and Buck, was still alive. He said to call the horse agitated was a laughable understatement. The horse also had a cut or burn the size of a quarter on its nose and on the inside of his leg. So there was also a group of cattle when he first arrived that were all huddled together near the barn. Glenda stated that none of the animals would go anywhere near Princess or Buck. So their dog, even worse, was shaking and drooling, whining, and had the same marks on her as the young surviving horse. Glenda said the dog wouldn't even leave the house anymore. (gasps) So usually it's whatever animals around are dead. Yeah. It's not very common for animals to be left behind. Yeah. And these animals saw something. They're like extremely traumatized. And farm dogs are bred to protect cattle or just the farm animals in general so the fact that it was so scared wouldn't even leave the house and that's that's in their nature to always want to go out and be with the 
he noted like when he first got there that he could hear, hear a dog like almost howling inside the house. Aww. Yeah. Another thing too is all of these places are usually very rural. Totally, yeah. I mean, it's it's usually ranches. Yeah. Because the animal mutilations seem to usually be cattle or horse and then sometimes livestock and sometimes dogs. Yeah. So those are like similarities of things that happen to the animals directly. So there are also scene similarities. So let's go back to the Snippy the Horse case. As with the thousands of mutilations since, there were no animal or human tracks anywhere near the horse's body, nor were there any signs of struggle. According to the rancher who owned the horse and various witnesses who were present when the animal was found, there was, however, a strange circular indentation in a nearby field, which the rancher attributed to a flying saucer. Furthermore, according to some reports by interviewers who returned to the scene over the next few years, that section of the ranch remained barren. No grass would grow there. What? So we have a couple things there that are similar, and we'll go back to the Oregon article. So one big one is no tracks. Mm -hmm. So in the Oregon article, it's talking about a different case. And it says two years ago, so I guess this is around, that's around 2017. Um, 200 miles south near Princeton, Oregon, one of Andy Davies' cows was also found cut up and bloodless. She and her husband drove concentric circles around the corpse, but they never found any tracks. And in this dusty country, everything you do leaves tracks. Yeah. So no tracks. Right? Yep. The other common one is no blood left behind. Yeah. So back to the Oregon article, it says, Back in the 1980s, one of Terry Anderson's mother cows was mysteriously killed overnight. Standing at his ranch near Pendleton, Oregon, Anderson points to the exact spot where he found her on top of a mountain. He remembers his cow lying dead. Her udder removed with something razor sharp and not one drop of blood anywhere, Anderson says. He has never gotten over it. It's just left a really strange feeling with me since that day. You can't explain it, Anderson says, and you know no one else has been able to explain it. So, no tracks, no blood left behind. And in the snippy case, it talks about a indentation in the ground where nothing grew, mm -hmm. right? Well, if you go back to the first case in the 37th parallel with Glinda and her two horses, none of the animals would go near yeah. where, where it happened. And if you go in the Oregon article again, it talks about how there was no coyotes or buzzards or anything yeah. where it happened. So another weird similarity. That's super weird. Yeah. No predators went after it. So now let's go over some of the theories Okay. The first one is obvious. UFOs. Yep. Aliens. But I'll also say slash government. Really? Because not only have UFOs been spotted in the area where these animal mutilations happen, also unmarked black helicopters. Oh. So this is a conversation kind of between Glenda and Chuck from 37th Parallel. 
As they exited the house and walked back towards the corral, Glinda picked up on the conversation they had started by the two corpses. How can this be going on for so long in so many places without the government getting involved? I mean, unless the government is involved. Chuck understood her meaning. Plenty of people who'd researched the phenomenon had come to the conclusion that many, if not all, of the mutilations had something to do with secret military projects. It was not uncommon for ranchers and other witnesses to come forward after a police report telling stories of seeing black, unmarked helicopters near mutilation sites, as well as other flying craft of various shapes and sizes zigzagging over the spots where bodies had been found. One of the most famous modern-era cattle mutilation sites, a ranch owned by the Gomez family, located near the peak of Arculeta Mesa, 13 miles from Dolce, New Mexico, had lost upward of 50 head of cattle to mutilations in incidents spanning the years between 1975 and 1983. An investigation headed by a local police officer, Gabe Valdez, had turned up numerous links to unknown military assets, including evidence of some sort of aircraft landing in the vicinity. Traces of radiation at the mutilation site, unknown nerve agents and sedatives found in the carcass's tissue, and reports of unknown craft as well as unmarked black helicopters in the area. So it got so bad in the 70s, especially in Colorado, that a U.S. Senator, Floyd Haskell, wrote a letter to the head of the FBI office in Denver. Really? Yes. So in the letter, he's pretty much asking the FBI for help. Mm -hmm. So this letter was written in 1975. And at the time, he says, there's at least 130 cases in Colorado alone have been reported to local officials. And he talks about how it's happened over several states and that virtually in all the cases, the left ear, the left eye, rectum, and sex organs of each animal had been cut away and the blood drained from the carcass, but with no traces of blood left on the ground and no footprints. Wow. This is him writing this, yeah. <laughs> a senator. So the FBI like won't look into it, pretty much. And he's asking for help because he's saying at this point, farmers and ranchers are getting their shotguns out and ready. Yeah. And they're seeing helicopters and stuff, and they were worried that they were going to, like, shoot one of these helicopters down. Yeah. I mean, all these animals, it's their livelihood. These animals cost thousands and thousands of dollars, especially those bulls that were killed in Oregon. Exactly. Yeah, they were, like, $6,000 each or something, Yeah, and right? there was a reward for if anybody had any kind of information because, I mean, bulls are just, they're very expensive. Yeah, they were, it also mentioned that they were carrying guns with them everywhere yeah. at that point because they didn't know what was going on. Yeah, you don't know if it's some sort of huge predator that can take down these. They're already massive creatures. Exactly. They were saying if it can take down a giant bull, what's it going to do to a 180-pound cowboy? I think yeah. is what one of the guys said. Exactly. So another common theory is witchcraft. They talk okay. about, you know, the removal of the organs. Yeah. Maybe they're doing rituals. Maybe they're doing sacrifices. But like Scully talks about, this is completely unsubstantiated. It's satanic panic. Yep. I'm not even going to go into it. Mm -mm. So I also came across this one weird little mini thing. So in Where the Footprints End, Volume 2, um, 
it mentions this one. I came across this one little story. Ugar Penanoma, Spain, experienced a wave of animal mutilations in 1985. In September, several witnesses awakened by their barking dogs watched multiple six-foot-tall balls of light silently drifting around their property. Small, ape-like creatures walked next to the spheres. Though multiple shots were fired at the creatures and the orbs, they displayed no apparent effect. Wow. <laughs> so that's, that's a little, just a mini that's weird so, thing that I so came creepy. across. Okay, six-foot-tall balls of light, smaller ape-like creatures who are apparently bulletproof, near animal Wild. mutilations. Okay. So for the last thing, specifically when there's cases, when there's some sort of puncture to kind of fang looking things, mm -hmm. almost like vampire style, yep. a common one, of course, is the chupacabra. I came across this BBC Earth article called The Truth About a Strange Bloodsucking Monster. So, tales of the chupacabra first emerged in Puerto Rico in the late 1990s. They described a bipedal creature four or five feet tall with large eyes, spikes down its back, and long claws. This beast, people claimed, were responsible for killing and draining the blood of livestock, an act that earned its name, which in Spanish is goat sucker. Mm. So, this article specifically is talking about the five-year-long research of a man named Benjamin Radford. So he, he's a skeptic, okay. but he's also an investigator. So he even spoke with a first reporter of the phenomenon, Madeline Tolentino, and she comes from a town in the east of Puerto Rico. So in 1995, she spotted a scary alien-like creature out of her window. So then the stories kind of just spiral out of control. They start finding these uh, mutilated cattle Mm -hmm. And then they start, people start saying, reporting that they see this little alien type creature running around. Now, he also later in the article calls the chupacabra the first internet monster because oh. it was in 1995. He said True. if it was in 1985 that he thinks a couple people would have had an account and it would have kind of just not gone as viral as it mm -hmm. had because it's a household name. So then in the 2000s, it kind of shifted, it kind of shifted its look. It became this hairless dog-like creature that walked on all fours. Mm -hmm. So supposedly there had been bodies of this creature found in Texas and other Southwestern states. So Radford was super excited because there's bodies. He can test them. He got DNA tests and he found out they were dogs coyotes, raccoons, and it said even a fish. So most of these bodies were supplied by ranchers who knew these critters, right? Mm -hmm. But the reason they didn't recognize them is something called sarcoptic mange. Yeah. So this is caused by itch-inducing mites who burrow into the upper layer of the skin. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen those pictures of that bear with mange? Yeah. Imagine seeing that in the woods. So Radford also claims that the livestock that had puncture marks were simply dogs or other predators who bit the cattle and then the cattle died from internal hemorrhaging. Hmm. Apparently he says it's common to just bite something and then leave. So for the blood draining, 
He says, when an animal dies, the heart and blood pressure stop. He explains, the blood seeps to the lowest part of the body and it coagulates and thickens. It's called lividity. And it gives the illusion that they've been drained of blood. This, of course, uh, does not explain laser-like cuts, missing organs, lack of tracks, yeah, uh, no blood on the scene. These are kind of specifically for these chupacabra livestock yeah. accounts. So no matter what the theory is regarding these strange animal mutilations, the fact remains that there are thousands of unexplained cases reported all across the U.S. my favorite mythological being. My werewolves are your vampires. Yes. Vampires have been appearing in written texts as early as the 11th century. Mm. And they are just ingrained in our American pop culture. From Dark Shadows, Dracula, Blade, Twilight, and True Blood. And what, Vampire Diaries, The Originals... Wait, is that a vampire show? It is. I've never seen any of these, but I've seen the covers of them, and I'm like, wow, they've... You you caught me watching it a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> Vampires have just always fascinated me, and I wanted to learn more and talk about some legends about them. Cool. And I just kind of want to... I wanted to know more why they do the things they do. Yeah. There's a lot... There's a lot of, like, rules. There's a lot of rules. Yeah. And that's a good thing to bring up because there's too many. There's so many different versions of vampire rules, vampire characteristics. I'm just going to cover a few basics, and then I'll go into my bigger topic, which is modern vampires. Very cool. Did you know that vampires weren't always beautiful? Actually, no. I didn't either. LiveScience.com writes that originally they were in Europe of the Middle Ages. Vampires were said to be bloated, shrouded corpses who rose from the dead to suck blood and cause strange diseases. Probably because recently deceased bodies often bloat as they decompose and intestinal decomposition can force blood into the mouth, making it look like a dead person who has a mouthful of fresh blood. Mm. So... Why do they have powers? That was my question. Like, almost everything we've seen, they've always had powers. Except for an interview with a vampire, they didn't really have any powers. No, they're pretty super strong. So the best explanation I could find behind why they do is because the nature of vampification is to enhance the qualities someone already has. Those humans with latent powers get full-fledged powers when they turn, whereas humans without such powers simply gain enhanced personality traits. So there are about 12 different kinds of powers that vampires can get. They can create other vampires. Everybody knows that. They have flight. They can have misting abilities. Misting, you mean like turning in, like... Turning into a mist that gives them access to places that are hard to secure or reach. Oh, that's a D&D move. Strength equal to that of many men and it increases with age, which I learned about on True Blood. Hypnosis used for luring and ensnaring victims. Change in size or dimensions. They have the ability to control the elements. 
which yeah. I didn't Let's know. go back to change in size. So like look the way they do, but shrink. Yeah. I've never heard any stories of vampires doing that. Me neither, they should to be use honest. That. Yeah. Control of animals, including insects, rats, fleas, and bats. Ah. Eternal life. They have the ability to scale walls. Transformation. They can turn into bats, cats, dogs, wolves, and butterflies. Also, insects, rats, birds, fleas, mice, and locusts. Wow. And drain life force. Psychic vampires. Yes. So I wanted to know why bats? Because that was the animal that I associate with vampires. So where did that idea come from? Some are under the impression that Bram Stoker started the whole idea behind vampires turning into bats and wolves, according to vampires.com. That's what I thought. Yeah, well, so this was actually used before Bram Stoker's work. Mm. But he helped cement the idea of vampire transforming into a bat into the public's consciousness. Linguist explorer and secret agent Captain Sir Richard F. Burton and his Vikram and the Vampire which is an adapted Hindu folktale, presented to his readers a vampire that appeared chiefly as a large bat-like creature. But Burton was also not the first to make the connection either. But it is known that vampires have had an association with bats for centuries or even longer. There is also the medieval tendency to depict demons with bats' wings. So what I was thinking was the old paintings and yeah. stuff. Yeah. kind of looks like bat wings. And that's, so. that's what I think. Vampire bats did get their name and some of their fictional characteristics associated with them from their vampire counterparts. Mm. So why do vampires drink blood and why can't they eat food? I think anyone who has seen a vampire movie or read a vampire book knows that vampires need blood to survive. They prefer humans but settle for animals or if you are a true blood fan, synthetic blood. Like a living being, vampires don't need food. Godsandmonsters.com says, In human bodies, food is digested and transformed into energy. Since vampires do not have active digestive systems, blood is ingested and absorbed directly into the bloodstream. Fresh blood is necessary for vampire survival. It is blood that allows them to regenerate both any wounds they may acquire and to sustain living flesh. Since vampires are essentially dead, their bodies naturally decay. Fresh blood moving through that body allows their flesh to stay alive. And for my last one, why can't they have garlic? I was going to say, if you don't say that, I'm going to ask you. <laughs> so I found several interesting takes on this, but here are my top two favorite ones I found. According to Toronto Garlic Festival, a persistent belief is the power of garlic is to ward off vampires. Probably the most popular theory of the origin of the vampires is the disease porphyria, a term for several diseases which are caused by irregularities in the production of heme, a chemical in blood. Some forms of this disease cause sufferers to be sensitive to light and leads to disfigurement of the skin, including erosion of the lips and gums. These factors could have led to the corpse-like fanged appearance that we associate with vampires, and their dislike of sunlight. Interestingly, people who suffer from porphyria also have an intolerance to foods that have a high sulfur content, such as garlic. Mm. 
and a garlic festival would know these things. Yes. Okay, for my second take, and my favorite one, vampires have heightened senses, and bottom line, garlic has a strong smell that repels them. Just like that kid on my track team in high school who refused to wear deodorant as a joke. The smell is just too overpowering. (laughs) Did you know you can find vampires right here in the U.S.? Yes, I did, actually. Okay. There is a community of people who identify as vampires in New Orleans, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. I know when most people think of New Orleans and vampires, interview with a vampire comes to mind. Or even the originals, like we talked about earlier. But there is a whole group of real-life vampires. In 2015, the Washington Post published an article titled Inside the Human Blood Drinking, Real Vampire Community of New Orleans. It takes a look at the vampire communities around New Orleans. The magazine interviewed a man called John Edgar Browning, who embarked on a class project that would turn into five years of field study among the real vampires of the French Quarter. To be clear, these aren't people who possess the supernatural powers that we associate with many of our modern vampires, but rather individuals who claim to have a medical condition that requires them to drink blood, human or animal, in order to sustain themselves. They even have an organization called the New Orleans Vampire Association, or NOVA. It is a nonprofit organization comprised of self-identifying vampires, representing an alliance between houses within the community in the greater New Orleans area. Very cool. Yeah. So NOVA was founded in 2005. It was established to provide support and structure for the vampire and other kin subcultures and to provide educational and charitable outreach to those in need. What NOVA does do is back or support the houses of NOVA by promoting the actions of the individual members such as parties, charities, and feeding of the homeless, which is also a gift to the greater New Orleans population. Beyond support, NOVA strives to educate both those new to the vampiric state and the human population as to what it is to be a member of this community. The members of NOVA strive to see this community set apart from the fads of pop culture and make it easier for members to live the reality that they embody. So surveys conducted by the Atlanta Vampire Alliance have found that there are at least 5,000 people in the U.S. who identify as real vampires. According to Browning, symptoms of vampirism appear around puberty, when those who later become reliant on ingesting blood find themselves physically drained for no discernible reason. They usually discover accidentally that blood offers a remedy. They might bite their lip, for instance, and realize that swallowing the metallic liquid between their teeth gives them an instant burst of energy. The vampire community has adopted terms for their habits. To feed is to drink blood, while those who give their blood are called donors. Being awakened and coming out of the coffin are ways to talk about becoming aware of one's vampiric identity. Elder vampires, then, are those who have been awakened for some time and can in turn advise others on how to cope. People also become a donor for many various reasons. And it's a, it's a consensual thing. Yeah, very, it's a consensual thing. So some of the donors get financial compensation or even favors. Mm. Vampires approach potential donors after having observed them for some time, and only if they're fairly certain that they're the kind of people who won't freak out. The vampire community in the French Quarter is predominantly Caucasian and to a lesser extent Latino. They range in age from 18 to 50, 
and they are identified with a range of sexualities and religions and were split almost evenly between men and women. Nova states that they are composed of artists, priests, mystics, lawyers, teachers, writers, parents, married couples, and single individuals. Nova as a group cuts across the socioeconomic and ethnic spectrum. Like the legends of the vampire that the members invest in as a personal reality, Nova finds its members in every segment of life. As it is written in the shadows, have we our nations and tribes, we are as many as the stars in the night sky and storms of the earth. So when I was in New Orleans a few years ago, I was in the French Quarter at a shop, just looking around, and I got to talking to another person in the store, just kind of asking them, like, oh, are you from here? And, you know, they're telling me a little bit about their life story. And then they handed me an invitation to a vampire club. Ooh, you must look like a donor, someone who wouldn't freak out. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) So this club is something that tourists strive to find, but you need an invitation and also a password to give at the door. Very cool. Mm -hmm. But you didn't go. I didn't go, no, but I still wonder what it might look like inside. Once again, we have a reported sighting of the infamous jetpack guy, and this time with a video. The jetpack guy was witnessed by sling flight instructor Brandy Fogelman and a student. On December 21st, 2020, during the winter solstice. Once again, he was reported at about 3,000 feet. This time it was over the ocean near Rancho Palos Verdes in California. The video was posted to Sling Pilot Academy's Instagram page and lasts about 30 seconds. Fogelman told Fox 11 that I've never seen anything like it and that you could see arms and legs. Her CEO, Wayne Tudden, who is also a pilot, had no explanation. Tudden said, We didn't report it because we didn't know really what it was. But like I say, it really did look a lot like a jetpack. The Federal Aviation Administration stated that they take these reports very seriously. This is a statement released by the FAA. The FAA has not received any recent reports from pilots who believe they may have seen someone in a jetpack in the skies around Los Angeles. The FAA has taken the sighting reports it has received seriously and has worked closely with the FBI to investigate them. However, The FAA has been unable to validate the reports. On December 29, 2020, at roughly 8.30 p.m., eyewitnesses on the Hawaiian island of Oahu spotted a UFO in the night sky, prompting several 911 calls. The UFO had a glowing blue color and an oblong shape, witnesses said. The UFO, which was caught on video, was described by one onlooker as larger than a telephone pole. It sailed across the sky for several miles before crashing into the ocean, witnesses said. 
Law enforcement contacted the Federal Aviation Administration the night of Tuesday, December 29th, about a witness report of a possible plane down in the area. FAA spokesperson Ian Greger told USA Today, We followed up on the report but had no aircraft disappear off radars, and we had no reports of overdue or missing aircraft. So for our first installment in this new movie review segment, I chose the 1979 horror cult classic Tourist Trap, uh, starring some big names like Chuck Connors as Mr. Slauson, probably best known for his role in The Rifleman, Tanya Roberts as Becky, who most people know as Donna's mom and who has recently passed away. Rest in peace, Tanya Roberts. Also starring Jocelyn Jones as Molly, John Van Ness as Jerry, and Robin Sherwood as Eileen. It was directed by Joe Schmoller and co-written by him and J. Larry Carroll. Joe Schmoller is probably best known for The Puppet Master, and J. Larry Carroll was the editor for the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974, and later wrote episodes for Stargate SG-1 and Star Trek The Next Generation. Explaining the plot of this movie in a few sentences is something I could not do on my own, so I will let IMDb do it for me. Teenagers come across a shut-in psychopath with telekinetic powers. He proceeds to use those powers to slay them one by one, as well as animate the various mannequins he uses to keep himself company. The score was composed by Italian composer Pino Dinaggio, known for films like Dress to Kill and Seed of Chucky. The score is really interesting and uses strange female vocals that kind of represent the mannequins. So a lot of this kind of stuff. And this kind of stuff. So, Amalia, what did you think of our first movie, The Tourist Trap? So I went into this not knowing anything about it, other than it was a late 1970s war movie. The first few minutes of watching it, I knew I was in for a doozy right away. That opening score. Opening score, I was like, The flutes and the little... Yes, and the mannequins. Mannequins freak me out in general because I used to work at Macy's. Out of clothes all the time. Mannequins terrify me. The great thing about this movie is it just starts with a bang. Yeah. I mean, the first like five minutes, it's like telekinetic powers. Yeah. Creepy roadside attraction. Yep. Psycho guy with a mask. Moving mannequins and dolls. <laughs> One thing to note is it's not really gory, right? Nope. And there's no uh, nudity. Not really cussing. Mm-mm. No sex scenes. No. Nope. Um, Keep it kind of clean. But 
the people still are getting picked off one by one. Yep. So the movie is rated PG. PG. Yep. The film holds the distinction of being one of the few slasher films in horror to have a PG rating. So Joe Bob Briggs says that this is one of Stephen King's favorite movies, but that he didn't enjoy Chuck Connors' performance. Uh, what did you think of Chuck Connors? He creeped me out. So he did his job. He did his job. Yeah. I mean, he is kind of in the yeah Cowboy Hall of Fame. He was yeah. in the Rifleman. He was a basketball player, a baseball player. Um, just kind of like all-American kind of guy. Yeah. Smoked three packs a day for a long time. But like in this, when you first meet him, the three women are like skinny dipping in the pond. Yeah. And he just approaches and kind of doesn't even act like they're doing this. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like he's in some sort of like commercial for like coffee in the 70s or something. The way he's talking to them. Just like, mighty fine day we're having. Yeah. (laughs) You know, kind of just kind of a strange vibe. Yes. Do you remember the creepy laughter in the opening scene? Oh, yeah. I've heard that somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you know where it's from? (laughs) So, the creepy laughter, which is prominent in the opening scene, was created for the laughing hyena at the zoo in Lady and the Tramp. And it was also used in Disney's It's a Small World attraction. Yeah, I knew that I've heard that. And I've heard that laugh in other places, too. Because mm-hmm. really, I really did recognize it. So, that's interesting. Yep. So, the writers, like you talked about earlier, they intended for John Carpenter to direct the film. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Would have been a lot different movie. A lot different. But the writer, J. Larry Carroll, was unsatisfied with the final arrangements and opted instead that David should direct it. Interesting. So another thing I love is the confusion the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> is it people covered in wax that are kind of still alive somehow? Like the Max Museum? Yeah. Is it mannequins? Because also there's animatronics mm-hmm. that supposedly his brother built and telekinesis. Yeah. So telekinesis wasn't originally in the script. They thought about just making the mannequins haunted and that's why they moved. Okay. So usually with these kind of movies, I always think of it as it's either a good, good movie. Mm-hmm. It's... A good, bad movie, mm-hmm. or it's a bad, bad movie. Yeah. So what'd you think out of those three? I'd say a good, bad, memorable, creepy, goofy, and all around pretty scary. It hits It hits all the marks for me yeah. of something that is a good, bad movie. Yes. has a really interesting score. It has some funny overacting, mm-hmm. and it has practical effects. And a kind of a close setting. Yeah, there's only, I mean, at the end, that was one of the shortest credits as far as actors go that yeah. I think I've ever seen. It is just like those, I think like six or seven characters, mm-hmm. um, two that aren't really in it very long. Yeah. Yeah, so that the film was actually shot in only 24 days. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yep, in Los Angeles. 
and a portion of the interior scenes being shot at an abandoned house located in located at Hollywood Boulevard. And the building was set to be demolished. So they just recorded it and then, yeah. That's perfect because it's yeah. probably already like all rickety and yeah. ready to go out. Yeah, it's I thought that setting. was interesting. Yeah. I wonder what they did with some of the, I mean, some of them were just like store mannequins. Yeah. You know, Davy Crockett, like it was some famous like American figures that were supposed to be these animatronic things. Mm-hmm. But you you could very much tell they were not animatronic. I think it, I think they might have been people in suits. They were not. <laughs> yeah, they were. Were they? Sometimes they were a mannequin and other times when they had to do the animatronics moves. I'm pretty sure it was just a person with a crap ton of makeup on. And then the sound effect was just like a reeling metal gear. Yeah. I loved that so much. Yeah. Overall, it's got the the coveted so bad it's good rating. And I think it was a great first first movie for us to review. What'd you think, Lilliput? Oh yeah. <laughs> she is uh, sleeping right now, so she loved it. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Anomalous Waves. Make sure and check our show notes for all of our references for today's episode especially the spooky news because both stories had videos in them, as well as our contact information and all of our social media. If you have any cool stories that you want to share, be sure to email us at anomalouswaves at gmail.com. Or uh, message us on any of the social media. All right. Bye. Goon the sheesh. And goodbye. All right, Lily. Come say bye. (laughs) Bye.